Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 24, Haunted Artifacts at the British Museum Years ago, in preparation for a vacation trip to London, I did what I always do when going to a new place. I looked up local ghost stories. London, given its age and traditions, has enough ghost stories that one could easily fill multiple volumes just documenting the best-known ones. So, it was a fair bit beyond my capabilities to build up an encyclopedic knowledge of them. Hell, I wasn't even able to track down the story about 50 Berkeley Square, which I recount in episode 1 of this series, until years after this trip. But I did notice certain trends and themes that were pretty interesting. One of these themes was that a fair number of ghost stories centered on objects that had been taken to London from other parts of the world, often obtained in ways that, to our modern eyes, are questionable, if not outright unethical, and as the largest repository of such items in London, the British Museum had more than a few such stories. I will not even try to encompass every ghost story set around the British Museum in this episode, but I do want to talk about two that I found particularly interesting. Story 1. The Aztec Skull There is a curious artifact sitting in the British Museum in London. A skull carved of rock crystal, a clear and colorless variety of quartz, that is purported to be from an Aztec site in Mexico. The skull was brought to the British Museum in 1897 from Tiffany and Company, New York, who had bought it from French antiquities dealer Eugene Boban, who had, in turn, claimed to have bought it from an English collector who had himself bought it from a Spanish officer who had served in Mexico in the 1850s and 1860s. This is the Rube Goldberg machine of chains of custody. Crystal skulls are a significant element of modern supernatural and especially New Age lore. They are always said to have been made by ancient civilizations, sometimes said to be from Atlantis or Lemuria, and to possess a wide range of amazing mystical powers. Like other similar crystal skulls, people claim that the British Museum's Aztec skull gives off energy, likely has psychic powers, and may even have healing powers. But none of this makes it appropriate to a ghost story podcast. What does, however, make the Aztec skull appropriate to a ghost story podcast is the fact that it is claimed to move on its own, that museum personnel allegedly insist that the skull be covered when the museum is closed because it freaks them out otherwise, and that various odd sounds and eerie feelings are tied to the skull. In other words, leaving aside the baggage that comes with it being a mystical crystal skull, its alleged behavior and properties are consistent with what is usually attributed to a haunted object. 
If you look up Aztec Skull British Museum via Google, you'll find all manner of websites that, in addition to promoting the usual stories associated with crystal skulls, claims of ties to Atlantis or aliens, claims of healing powers, claims of magical properties, etc., these sites also tell a vague but eerie stories concerning this particular school, which are consistent with what people describe when talking about haunted houses, such as the skull allegedly moving on its own, sometimes when nobody is looking, and sometimes when someone is actually watching it through the glass of its display case. Nobody has ever caught this on film or video, but the stories persist. It is also claimed that the museum employees insist that the skull be covered at night when the museum is closed in order to not see it move and to stave off the creepy feelings often associated with it, though getting confirmation of this from the British Museum seems impossible. Also, it is claimed that museum employees working after closing, report symptoms typical of those in haunted houses. Feelings of being watched, unexplained sounds, sudden fears, or general feelings of creepiness when working in the vicinity of the skull. So, although most crystal skulls are usually viewed as either odd baggage of the New Age movement's crystal power claims or as elaborate hoaxes, the Aztec skull sitting in its display case at the British Museum should be viewed as an object of interest for ghost story enthusiasts. Commentary The story of the Aztec skull is fascinating in and of itself. Bought by the museum in the 19th century and documented as coming from a well-known French antiquities collector, the skull was thought to be a pre-Columbian artifact from the Americas, as time went on and more crystal skulls came to light, archaeologists and sociocultural anthropologists began to get suspicious. Many of the cultures of Central and South America did manufacture carved skulls out of locally available stones. People living in the Americas during the 19th century discovered that European and North American museums were hungry for pre-Columbian artifacts and would therefore carve many new ones, possibly including small skulls, out of whatever material was at hand, sometimes including authentic but less beautiful ancient stone artifacts. These skulls were usually highly stylized in keeping with local traditions, however, and were quite different from the style of crystal skulls of modern supernatural lore. The crystal skull craze began to pick up when Anna Mitchell Hedges, daughter of adventurer and shameless self-promoter and teller of tall tales, F.A. Mitchell Hedges, produced a skull that she claimed to have found at an archaeological site in Belize while working with her father. The skull was mentioned very briefly in F.A. Mitchell Hedges' 1954 autobiography, but it didn't become well-known until the late 1960s, when Anna began to tour it for profit. Along with other crystal skulls that began to be better known, this one drew public attention and popularity throughout the 1970s as a result of the New Age movement's belief in the alleged powers of crystals. Many of the crystal skulls, including the Aztec skull, have been subjected to tests by numerous research institutions. The popular narrative holds that these tests have routinely shown that the skulls don't have tool marks, that they are carved in such a way that it would have been impossible to carve them without destroying the crystal, that they have been dated to ages long before human civilization, etc., etc. The truth is rather different. The tests that have been done have consistently shown that the skulls do have tool marks, and that these tool marks are consistent with European crystal carving tools dated to the late 19th century through to the modern day. Some folks claim that different researchers have performed tests on crystal skulls but are refusing to release the results or acknowledge that the tests have ever been done. 
which is usually code for we got nothing, but at least we can claim a cover up to distract people. In other words, the crystal skulls are fakes. The Aztec skull was sold to the museum by Eugene Boban, who probably bought it in Oberstein, Germany, where such crystal work was routinely done in the late 19th century. And while this information is out there for anyone willing to look for it, the display at the British Museum spells a lot of this out. Okay, so much for the legend of the crystal skulls. What about the Aztec skull as a haunted object? Alright, well now that's more interesting. As said previously, most of the manifestations of the skull's haunting are typical of haunted house manifestations, something with which Londoners would be very familiar. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say that, as the crystal skulls became the manifestations of the creepy side of the crystal power craze, the Britons working at the museum began to attribute the same sorts of symptoms to the skull in their possession. And of course, there is the fact that the skull was purchased and brought to the museum under the assumption that it was a rare and unusual artifact from a pre-Columbian Aztec site. This made the item exotic, and given that it was associated with people who were thought of as primitive but also potentially supernaturally powerful, at least in the popular imaginations of many Europeans, it made the item both alluring and dreadful. The same view of non-Europeans as exotic and likely magical helped to feed the 1970s obsession with crystal skulls, and so it isn't surprising that fearful behaviors have been attributed to the skull in the British Museum. There is another angle that I also think is worth considering. I've argued in other episodes that ghost stories can, among many other purposes, serve as a way for us to discuss elements of the past that make us uncomfortable. It is worth noting that the British Museum has been subject to intense scrutiny over the last few decades regarding how many of these items came into its collection. There have been numerous accusations of theft and underhanded dealings to obtain valuable and historic items from their places of origin. I'm not going to weigh in on these matters right now. They are far more complex than most people on either side of this argument would want you to believe. The fact is that discussion about the legitimate ownership of items found in the museum's collection and whether or not items taken from places colonized by the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th century can be said to have been obtained legitimately has been an active and ongoing public discussion for decades. It has become part of the public consciousness. As a result, that an item allegedly from a region colonized by a European power, though admittedly Spain and not Britain, and already associated with some rather cringe-worthy mystical claims, would come to be seen as essentially haunted, is not surprising. Ironically, though, as this skull was likely made in Germany with the intention that it be sold, rather than being taken out of an archaeological site with any concern for what the descendants of the people of that site might have thought, that means this is probably one of the least ethically questionable items at the museum. The skull is on display in the museum, but it's hidden away in a corner, hard to find without help. If you'd like to see it, ask museum personnel to direct you towards it. When I visited the British Museum, of course, I wanted to see it. But in a museum filled with genuine artifacts from around the world, I felt like an idiot asking for help to find a fake item with a supernatural reputation. So I kept looking and didn't ask. And my wife got fed up with me being a wimp about it and asked a security guard who provided excellent directions to it with a friendly smile. Whatever the reputation of the skull itself, and whatever the ethical concerns over the artifacts at the museum, the staff there is friendly, professional, and kind.
Story 2, The Unlucky Mummy, The Holborn, and the British Museum Underground Stations. The London Underground Station for the British Museum is abandoned. It is what's referred to as a ghost station, a train station that is still present and in more or less working order, but simply never used. Appropriately, it is said to be haunted, but bizarrely, it is haunted by the ghost of a long-dead Egyptian princess. The station operated during the first three decades of the 20th century, opening in 1900 and closing in 1933 when other nearby stations made it redundant. As early as the 1930s, and possibly as early as 1900, stories began to spread about the station being haunted by the wailing spirit of a woman that appeared in a loincloth and an Egyptian headdress. The spirit is said to be the ghost of an Egyptian princess named Amun-Ra, whose mummy is stored at the museum. As the story goes, the spirit appears late at night within the station, wailing and screaming in the now-dead language of ancient Egypt, possibly in anguish over the desecration of her grave. It has been stated that, prior to the station being closed, a newspaper offered a cash reward to anyone willing to spend the night in there, potentially facing a vengeful spirit. Nobody ever took the paper up on the offer. The haunting didn't remain confined to the British Museum station. After the station closed, tales of the haunting moved up the track to Holborn Station. Apparently, even ghosts aren't immune to workplace relocation. In 1935, two years after the station closed, a movie named Bulldog Jack, loosely based on the Bulldog Drummond stories, made use of the Egyptian princess story and had, as a plot device, a secret tunnel leading from the British Museum to Bloomsbury Station, a fictional station clearly intended to be the British Museum Station. It is often said that, on the night that this movie opened, two women went missing from Holborn Station, and marks, the nature of which were never described in any source I have found, were found at the British Museum Station during the subsequent investigation. It has also been said that, late at night, one can still hear the Egyptian spirits screaming if one is standing down tunnel in the Holborn Station. In fact, this is used in Keith Lowe's novel Tunnel Vision when the main character uses the story to scare his girlfriend. Holborn Station is currently decorated with images of Egyptian artifacts as a way of advertising its proximity to the museum. But to someone who knows the ghost story, these decorations seem amusingly macabre. Holborn Station also has another ghost story, though one with scant details. During World War II, disused parts of the station were converted into offices, a dormitory, and a canteen for government workers who needed to be protected from the Germans' nighttime bombings. In the 1950s, these facilities were used to house migrants, and in the 1960s, they may have been used as part of a military emergency facility near Holborn Station. I've been able to find very little on this latter use. Over the years, these facilities fell into disrepair and decay, and became rather eerie. The abandoned offices began to earn a reputation for being haunted, though the descriptions of the alleged haunting seem to be unavailable in the sources I have consulted. Commentary Okay, so first things first. And appropriate to this episode's title, let's deal with the mummy. There isn't one. Mind you, there are mummies in the British Museum, but none of them belong to a princess named Amun-Ra. In fact, 
Amun-Ra is an Egyptian god, not a princess. The assignation of the Amun-Ra name to the ghost in the station comes from an artifact in the museum often referred to by the public as the unlucky mummy. This alleged unlucky mummy is, in fact, not a mummy at all, but rather a lid for a burial that indicates that the grave's occupant was a woman, but gives no other indication of her identity. It was suggested by museum workers in the late 19th century that the grave might have belonged to a priestess of Amun-Ra, and in the popular imagination, the alleged priestess, who may not actually have been a priestess anyway, has been given the name Amun-Ra, even though her name in life was probably something much more mundane. The object was purchased by the British Museum in 1889 and has since been blamed for all manner of problems both at the museum and further abroad, including, interestingly, the sinking of the Titanic. This item is probably worth an entry by itself, and I suppose I should give it one, but back to the matter at hand. The story of the tunnel between the museum and the station is completely fictional. It comes directly from the movie Bulldog Jack, as far as I can tell. However, as happens, many people have chosen to believe that the museum's denial of the story is an attempt to hush up the truth. This is odd given that if such a tunnel did exist, the British Museum station would have been an ideal place to store artifacts during the Blitz, rather than routing them down to Aldwych Station, incidentally another ghost station said to be haunted by a real ghost, as was actually done. The stories of women vanishing in the newspaper offering a reward for anyone willing to stay in the tunnels appears everywhere that the ghost story appears. However, very few verifiable details are ever given. Which newspaper? What were the women's names? And as such, they can't be completely disproven. But the urban legend experts over at Snopes have noted on many occasions that unverifiable details in the story are often red flags that the story is more legend than truth. So they are great for the creepy story, and I intend to use them when telling the story to people, but may not be true. That being said, missing person cases are not uncommon in large cities such as London, but that doesn't mean that they are connected to a ghost, and early 20th century newspaper publicity stunts were also not uncommon. So perhaps these events occurred, but perhaps they did not. That said, much like the story of the Crystal Skull, I think that the story of the unlucky mummy, or I suppose I should call it the unlucky burial lid, tells us something about how the people of London viewed their relationship to the world in the early 20th century, and continue to view it today. Egypt has been considered a land of mysticism and wonder by Europeans at least as far back as the time of Socrates. By the late 19th century, however, Europe viewed Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East in a matter that scholar Edward Said describes as Orientalist. That is, these places were looked at in a romanticized way that played up their exoticism and allowed Europeans to celebrate aspects of these regions while simultaneously considering them inferior. This allowed European leaders and populations to justify their colonization of these areas. While people argue with the particulars of Said's description, it is irrefutable that Europe has a history of viewing these regions in a mystical, romanticized, and condescending rather than realistic manner. This attitude justified both the obtaining of artifacts from these regions by means ranging from the ethical to the abhorrent, and then displaying these artifacts at museums in Europe and North America. It also colored the public's views of these artifacts and the conditions under which they were obtained. While there was a paternalistic attitude of, well, we'll keep these safe because the savages don't know how to protect their own heritage, there was also an unease about the potential danger of these items, 
best exemplified by such legends as the Mummy's Curse striking down members of Howard Carter's expedition to King Tutankhamun's tomb. To this day, I meet people who are freaked out by what they perceive as the magical repercussions of interacting with artifacts. And so it seems natural enough that people might blame ill fortune or other elements on the alleged magical secrets of ancient Egypt. Such attribution was consistent with the romanticized views of Egypt as a place of mysticism and danger, and it may also, though I am going out on a limb with this one, have expressed some unease with British colonialism, as it suggests that taking elements from these outside cultures can be dangerous. Of course, maybe I shouldn't credit to introspection what could just as easily be explained by good old-fashioned xenophobia. Another related element that's worth mentioning is the description of the ghost. She is said to be wandering dressed only in a loincloth. Now, to be fair, the people of ancient Egypt, based on the documents that they left behind, appear to have dressed much less modestly than the people of England, which makes sense as Egypt is a very hot environment and England typically is not. However, it is also the case that there is a history in European and American culture of sexualizing those seen as being outsiders, especially women, which ranges from a preoccupation with documented sexual practices of non-Europeans, of course, always taking such practices out of the cultural context in which they make sense, to the focus on the bodies of women from other regions of the world. If you want a well-known but troubling example, Google Sarah Bartman, who was exhibited under the title The Hot and Tot Venus. And that's without getting into the history of both prostitution and sexual assaults in colonial contexts. It's hard not to think of all that cultural baggage when I hear the story of a loincloth-clad Egyptian princess wailing in the London underground. So, I think that in this story, and in the consideration of how it may be connected to the artifacts kept at the British Museum, we get a look into the psyches of the British public in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's worth considering how those attitudes and views have morphed into our modern values. And while I'm not going to say that the British Museum should liquidate its non-British collections and return everything to its place of origin, as popular as that rhetoric may be in some circles, the matter of how to treat collections and when and how to repatriate them is both legally and ethically far more complicated than most people think. I do believe that we need to consider how collections were gathered and how that gathering reflects the values and attitudes of the time. From there, discussions of display, retention, repatriation, and respectful curation must be entered into openly and honestly. Finally, on a less sober note, in looking into the haunting of the dormitory areas of Holborn Station, I found those stories disappointingly mundane. There's just a general reputation, no details given, pretty much as you'd expect for a disused place that is run down and kind of creepy looking. This is really too bad, as it would have been great to have more detailed stories about the place. Regardless, the area has now been renovated and no longer has its creepy atmosphere. More's the pity. The British Museum is a bit of a contradiction. It exists as a remnant of the colonial aspirations of the British Empire. And the artifacts it houses were, at least in part, obtained through means that, while they may have been legal and may even have protected the artifacts from destruction, were nonetheless taken from people in places not on a fair footing with the British Empire. 
At the same time, in housing these artifacts and helping the public to understand them, and through sponsoring scholarship into the social sciences, the British Museum has also been one of the instruments through which Europe has come to better understand the humanity of those same people from whom the artifacts were taken. It seems fitting that the creepy stories related to it should likewise have a nature intertwined with colonialism and its lingering effects. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>